Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. A new development in the story we've been following. Amidst a massive COVID-19 outbreak among workers, Merced County health officials in the Central Valley have ordered a Foster Farms poultry processing plant to shut down. Here's KQED's Alex Hall. County health officials announced the shutdown on Thursday, saying that Foster Farms had not followed directives, requiring widespread testing of workers at the Livingston plant. So far, 358 employees there have tested positive for the coronavirus, and eight have died. The county said those figures are based on employees choosing to get tested and notifying the company, and that the true spread of COVID at the plant is unknown. Local health officials, backed up by California Attorney General Javier Becerra and the state's acting health officer, say closing the plant is now the only way to get the outbreak under control. The county said it would delay enforcement of the order for 48 hours to give foster farms time to prepare for the closure. A foster farm spokesman said the company planned to release a statement on the shutdown order on Friday. For the California Report, I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. Amidst the threat of coronavirus, California is releasing thousands of inmates in state prisons early. Now Governor Gavin Newsom says California will commit $15 million to help formerly incarcerated people re-enter society. But is it enough? KQED's Kate Wolf reports. 36-year-old Ed Harris was let out of Sentinella State Prison in a hurry. They released me to the house with only $180, with no jacket, some old beat-up sweat, and a a T-shirt that was thin, and it was raining. Harris had less than 60 days left of a sentence stemming from a firearm charge. He was released in Riverside County in April as part of the state's plan to reduce crowding in prisons battling COVID-19 outbreaks. But Harris says he was unprepared for the release. He's scraping together a living as a security guard and staying over at friends' houses. He says he thought there would be more help. Help me really re-enter back into society and get back into the world as a taxpaying citizen, you know? State corrections officials say they've expedited the release of some 5,000 people. The influx has been worrying to reentry advocates who have long said that funds and support are inadequate. Doug Bond is the CEO of Amity Foundation, a reentry nonprofit. This is something that should not just be because of COVID. It really should be the way that people come home safely with the support needed back into their community. The foundation is part of the new initiative called Returning Home Well. Philanthropies have matched the state's $15 million. With $30 million total, the program will help people get housing and employment, among other needs. Harris hopes the initiative will be able to help him, but it probably won't. As it stands, the money will only go to people released after July. For the California Report, I'm Kate Wolf. 
too many fires and too few firefighters. That's been the situation in many parts of Northern California the last few days, as hundreds of wildfires burned and fire crews were stretched thin. So in Santa Cruz County, many residents came together to defend their mountain community against the CZU complex fire. KQED's Hannah Hageman has this closer look. Up from Highway 1, tucked in the redwoods, sits Bonnie Dune, a small community traditionally known as home to hippies and farmers alike. When the fire came towards the area a couple of weeks ago, residents were told to evacuate. This was all a wall of fire coming up the hill. I could just feel my skin singeing, and it was wrapping around going that way. So that's when I said we, we can't be here. That's Glenn Hansen, who stayed behind with his husband to defend their neighborhood. He's standing in front of a home they saved, but the effort wasn't without risk. I thought that we would die in here. The couple escaped after they cut a fire line around the home with their tractor and doused the flames with water. Hansen's husband, Mark Kuchler, has walked these same woods since he was a kid. He's seen his fair share of fires. His Bonnie Dune home has been in the family since 1975. Over the years, he's learned how to fireproof his property. And so as the fire approached, the couple sprang into action. Several days after the fire passed, Kuchler and Hansen are patrolling the neighborhood in a fully equipped fire truck they commandeered from a neighbor. If we weren't here, the houses that you see, none of them would be here. On property still at risk, they're using the fire hose to wet down smoldering areas. That's the worst, getting the ashes in the eyes. But that's the easy color. The couple says Cal Fire didn't show up to their neighborhood for over two days, and so they felt like they had to stay and fight. Got a hold of the school teacher that we saved her house, and she was just, she was so joyful and happy, she was crying. And it was just like, wow, you know, we, we, uh, we did that. Cal Fire has repeatedly warned residents like Kuchler and his husband to heed evacuation orders. Officials say they can't protect property if they're being called to rescue people who didn't evacuate. The couple said the risk they took was worth it. They protected 10 homes, although many were destroyed. But for them, it was about more than saving homes. This was a cute little cabin. You saw Lori's place. That was adorable. I mean... No one's really doing that anymore. It's not little woodworkers up here building their place in the 70s and having weird little hippie drum circles and all that. Hansen says more recently, it's only the rich who have been able to buy here. Many of the old-time locals, he says, might not have the money to rebuild. If you look at our Facebook page, it's called Bonnie Dune, a slice of heaven. It's the most beautiful place on earth. Every time we leave, I say, I don't have to go anywhere else. I just want to be home. And everyone who lives here feels that way, and now they don't have it. Hansen says with so many of these mountain hamlets being gentrified, they weren't just fighting the fire, but fighting to keep the soul of Bonnie Dune alive. For the California Report, I'm Hannah Hageman in Santa Cruz. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!
Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Recent wildfires have hurt all kinds of Californians, but they were especially hard on people who are elderly or disabled. When vulnerable people flee their homes, emergency services should be ready to help, but that's not always the case. KQED science reporter Molly Peterson has more. At least 20% of the population has some kind of disability, according to the census. But if you're blind, an evacuation center might not have braille signs. Shower stalls might be hard to get a wheelchair into, narrow and up a curb. In Watsonville and in Santa Cruz this week, disability advocates found these and other problems. This shows that we're not prepared. It really does. Judy Cabrera is with the Central Coast Center for Independent Living. She visits evacuation centers in disasters. Another common issue, none of the sites she visited had oxygen available for evacuees. If you are already a person with disability and you don't have somebody to help you, how are you going to carry that equipment with you to evacuate? If you have limited time, you can't. It's impossible. Those needs are always on the forefront of our minds. Jason Hoppen is a spokesman for Santa Cruz County. He says shelter managers have fixed what they can, but the fires displaced around 45,000 people countywide who needed immediate help. The scale of this, we've never, ever stood up more than a dozen sites at once. We've never come close to that. Advocates say disability access at shelters is a growing problem, especially as climate change makes disasters more intense and more frequent. For the California Report, I'm Molly Peterson. One of the biggest institutions threatened by this week's fires was UC Santa Cruz, which had a campus-wide evacuation. That came as the university was preparing for the coming academic year and figuring out how to teach most students virtually. I talked about these challenges with UC Santa Cruz Chancellor Cynthia LaRive. She says the evacuation order has been lifted, but there's still plenty to do as people return to campus. We will need to do a a number of things before we can repopulate sections of the campus. For example, we'll need to test buildings for air quality, cleanliness. We also went through this process of shutting down certain facilities like natural gas to make campus buildings less susceptible to the fire. And turning all those functions back on is not a simple flip of the switch, but it's a process that will take some time. And Chancellor, as you recover from the fire threat, you still have to prepare for the coming academic year, which starts there at UC Santa Cruz in a few weeks. How is that going? Well, it it will look uh, very different than uh, the fall of 2019. When we went to remote instruction in the spring, we did so with a big hurry. But now, over the summer, faculty and instructors at UC Santa Cruz and elsewhere been working so hard to try and have a high quality educational experience. Though it may be remote in the fall, I think um, we're just going to get better at this as we keep doing it. And generally, as a campus leader and as a scientist, you're actually a chemist by training. What would be your advice to UC students as classes begin again during the pandemic? Do you suggest they be stoic or adopt some other kind of approach? Yeah, I think um, I think being flexible 
and nimble, I don't think we have to be stoic. I think we can still have fun and we can do that safely. And that uh, community, community, we tend to think of that in the real personal sense of, of coming together at the table, um, having a meal together. But community is something bigger than that. And we can create community, create the student experience um, virtually for now, and knowing that in time we'll be able to all come together in person. So I think students have to keep an open mind, have to be flexible, and uh, take this opportunity to practice generosity of spirit as we face these challenges together. I think that will get us a long way. Okay, Cynthia LaRive, Chancellor of UC Santa Cruz, thanks so much. Oh, and slug strong to you and the rest of the Santa Cruz community. Yes, indeed. Slug strong. At this week's Republican National Convention, California was used as a punching bag in a lot of speeches. But the top California Republican to address the convention, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, tried to strike a more positive note last night. Here's KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarotti. Unlike many speakers at the convention, McCarthy actually referenced the COVID-19 pandemic in a recorded video address. But as every American knows, we face an invisible enemy that we didn't ask for nor invite, but we will defeat it. McCarthy praised the president's response to send loans to businesses and accelerate vaccine development. And perhaps defying expectations, McCarthy did not attack his home state, instead providing more generic charges against Democrats. They will dismantle our institutions, defund our police, and destroy our economy. McCarthy's Bakersfield district remains reliably red. Trump picked up 58 percent of the vote there in 2016. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. Here in Los Angeles, a landmark event in Latino civil rights history is being observed this week. The 50th anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium. Capping two years of protests on August 29, 1970, tens of thousands of Mexican-Americans marched in the streets of East L.A. in opposition to the Vietnam War and social and economic inequities. Here's a documentary film excerpt from the era. The Chicano people, through our moratorium, are saying now that the front line for Chicano youth is not in Vietnam, but in the struggle for social justice here in the barrios of the United States. But echoing what's happening in America's cities today, when police tried to break up the march, things turned violent. Four people were killed, including pioneering Latino journalist Ruben Salazar. He was struck by a tear gas canister fired by L.A. County Sheriff's officers, and the circumstances of his death are disputed to this day. And another anniversary. A hundred years ago this week, women officially won the right to vote. But it was only a partial victory, excluding many immigrants and women of color. This week, our sister show, The California Report magazine, features women talking about what the vote means to them. They include UC Santa Barbara professor Aida Hurtado. Her parents were immigrant farm workers who taught her the importance of voting. All those monumental decisions are encapsulated in this tiny little booth. To hear more women's stories about the vote, tune in to this week's California Report magazine.
And that's the California Report for Friday, August 28th, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin. Our producers are Alice Wolfley, Holly J. McDeed, and Mary Franklin Harvin. Our editor is Angela Corral. I'm Saul Gonzalez in L.A. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back on Monday. Support for the California Report comes from Earth Justice, a national nonprofit law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment. Earth Justice, because the Earth needs a good lawyer. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.